For our interview, we will be talking with Shelley Maurice Meyer, a PA who is a psychotherapist, published author, and inspirational speaker here in Bend, Oregon. Our topic is the good, the bad of anxiety and coping skills. I think that we need to launch right straight into this interview because you have some valuable information who, for people who are struggling with anxiety. And I think what we have to ask in the beginning is anxiety, friend or foe? Well, what a great way to start this very interesting subject, particularly at a time in our lives, all of our lives, where we are all suffering to some degree of anxiety. So, what a great question. Is it a friend or is it a foe? Well, my little talk is actually going to talk about the fact that it can actually be a friend. But before I get into that otherwise odd-sounding phrase, anxiety, a friend, how can that be? I will explain it. But first of all, I'd like to make clear the kind of anxiety that we're not going to be speaking to, and that's the kind of anxiety that we actually call a disorder. And that's the kind of anxiety that can start in early childhood with a social phobia where they don't like meeting people or being in a classroom, they're shy. Uh, for people who are uncomfortable at any age, just being interviewed or being on stage, then there's a kind of an agoraphobia where people feel very, very unsafe and find it very, very difficult, if not impossible, to get themselves outside into the real world because they just feel so utterly unsafe uh, in the outdoors. And then the other one, which is equally um, debilitating, is PTSD, which of course is post-traumatic stress disorder, and that can come from early childhood or being in the military and having uh, exceptionally challenging circumstances which can actually change your brain. So with that in mind, we're going to leave the actual what we call anxiety disorder category and go into the kind of anxiety which most all of us are trying to endure and learning how to cope with through this pandemic. And we call that more of a situational anxiety because, again, anxiety in and of itself, just as you were mentioning, Steve, you know, this is your first time trying to get this program together, uh, that's an appropriate thing that you would have anxiety. Uh, and the brain actually thanks you for that because it will go into gear to help you. But as I said, I'll talk about that and a little bit more serious lately. However, this is what I wanted to share with people so they can be aware that if you are experiencing anxiety and it's leading into what the greater concern is, a true depression, even though it is also considered a situational depression, these are the kinds of things that you might want to look for to say, wait a minute. Okay, she's going to talk about anxiety. I'm going to learn better how to cope with it. But what I don't want to have happen is not to deal with this anxiety and have myself fall into oppression and depression. And sadly, the percentage of those who are suffering through this anxiety at this time are falling into a depression. So how do we know if we're going from an anxiety to whatever our life circumstances are and how we feel helpless? to more of a depression. Well, first of all, 
after a period of about two weeks and you're noticing you might either have a weight gain or loss, you might have sleep problems like insomnia. And again, these are things that are lasting for two weeks or more. You might be waking up too early or sleeping too much. You could be recognizing that your self-esteem tank is getting lower and lower. Uh, many people feel a fairly profound fatigue or even simply put, just a loss of energy, something that is less than what they're typically used to. Also, this is a real, real good red flag, loss of enjoyment in your favorite activities or trouble concentrating or making decisions. And the one that we really want to be sensitive to is that feeling of hopelessness. So what do we do if our sense of anxiety has actually now started to turn into depression? Well, the first step toward a treatment or an understanding of how you can help yourself is to recognize those symptoms. So you really want to ask yourself, okay, I might have these symptoms once or twice in the week or whatever, but if they are persistent and they go without change for at least two weeks, this is what we want to discuss very briefly. So number one, deciding for yourself, oh gosh, I wonder if my anxiety has now turned into a depression. We can't always tell. So it's really important to ask a friend or your spouse or a relative to give you an honest assessment of how they think you've been behaving and are you showing any of those symptoms. And then the thing for you to do is to offer that same thing to others that you know may be suffering and going into a type of depression. Next thing that we want to do, don't try to manage it all by yourself if you're really there. Please get professional evaluation from a mental health expert, a counselor, your physician. Um, possibly you might need an antidepressant because actually depression frequently comes from unresolved anxiety. That's my point today. What are some of the things that we can do to prevent this happening? And then I'll again go into why anxiety is actually our friend. Number one, if you can, you stay engaged in life as much as is possible during this time. I mean, even small efforts that you make can be beneficial. For example, a daily walk. You don't have to walk fast. You don't have to walk in a long, lengthy trek. Just get out and walk. Start at five minutes, and if you can make it up to, to 20, that's excellent. Also, use the current situation as an opportunity to engage in a new indoor activity that can challenge you and keep your brain active. You know, pick up a musical instrument, or if you used to play and you haven't, I, for myself, I sit down and play the piano just to amaze myself. I wouldn't play it for anybody else, but it relaxes me, and it makes me feel good. Read a good book or do something that's physically challenged. Uh, anything that you can do to try to keep some routine that actually helps uh, your body feel better. So let's go into why I'm saying that anxiety is a friend. I'm going to be speaking from a scientific perspective, and we call that perspective neuroscience. And what it reveals is, is that gratitude chemically relieves anxiety and depression. And let me just go on. 
you know, sometimes it doesn't feel like our brain wants us to be happy. And we might even feel guilty or shameful. Well, why? Well, believe it or not, guilt and shame actually activate the brain's reward center. And Dr. Eric Baxter has written a wonderful article uh, about a UCLA neuroscientific researcher, Alex Korb. And this is what he says. It's quite fascinating. He said, despite their differences, pride, shame, and guilt all activate similar neural circuits in the brain. And interestingly, and this really surprised me, pride is the most powerful of these emotions at triggering activity in these regions. Now hear this, except in this part of the brain where guilt and shame win out. Now this explains why it can be so appealing to heap guilt and shame on ourselves because they're activating actually the brain's reward center. Wow. How have we been created? What's, what's, what's good in that? Well, in, in the reason why is, in short, worrying actually makes your brain feel better because you're at least doing something about the problem, right? Because he also says that worrying can help calm the limbic system by increasing activity. This is big words, but it's right. We all have it in our brain. The medial prefrontal cortex right behind the forehead and decreasing activity in the amygdala. And that amygdala further back of our brain, that's our fire alarm. As we think about it, what the heck then am I supposed to do? If this is supposed to be a good thing, why is it good? Okay, remember, it's just told you You have got something on your mind. You have a worry. What happens to most of us is that we don't know how to keep it there, work with it, and have it continue to be our friend. And we end up spiraling down into this incredible pit. What I'm going to tell you next offers four ways that if you choose to exercise them, you don't have to go down into that pit and continue to spiral down until the unresolved worry and anxiety can actually turn into a depression. So here it is, and it sounds like, well, this is too easy, this can't be right, but I just explained the neuroscience as to why it is correct. First of all, number one, ask yourself this, what am I grateful for? Gratitude is awesome, but does it really affect your brain at the biological level? Absolutely it does. One powerful effect of gratitude is that it will actually boost the neurohormone serotonin. Everybody's heard about that wonderful neurohormone. Just trying to think of things that you're grateful for, that will force you to focus on the positive aspects of your life. And in doing so, this is the key, you will actually increase the production of serotonin. And that is, as we know, the feel-good hormone. We know that life can throw us some pretty hard punches, and sometimes it's nearly impossible for us to come up with anything that we feel grateful about. But this is what's interesting. You will raise your emotional quotient, which we call the EQ, or your emotional intelligence, by several points if you choose to cooperate just with that first element of these four steps because as you search for gratitude 
that is actually what stimulates the serotonin, not what you're grateful for. I mean, I've had some of my patients say, I just can't even think of anything I'm grateful for, right? I, I could just think of one thing, just try to search for it. And when they practice that, voila, yes, they begin to start giving their brain a serotonin neurohormonal boost. Some people just try to say, I'm going to just suppress my emotions. That does not work to reduce anxiety. In fact, can even produce more of it. People who tried, and this was in a long, long study by Dr. Uh, Gross, and I found this in his research called Your Brain at Work, Strategies for Overcoming Distraction. People who tried to suppress a negative emotional experience all failed to do so. While they thought they looked fine outwardly, inwardly their limbic system, that's all connected to your immune system, was just as aroused as with suppression and in some cases even more aroused, trying not to feel something that doesn't work, and in some cases it will actually backfire. But if you actually label, okay, I'm going to label something, I'm going to say it's gratitude, bottom line is you will have an opportunity to move forward, and that's really what we're trying to help uh, people do. So what do we want to do then for the second one? You want to definitely look for gratitude, number one. That already will set the brain into motion. The second step is now you want to label the negative feeling that you're probably feeling. And you're going to say, okay, am I anxious, frustrated, sad, angry? What is it? Okay, believe it or not, it is that simple to find some degree of leaf. And does that sound un? believable to you. Again, Corb's research states, in one MRI study, he was able to view pictures of people with emotional facial expressions, and he was actually able to then determine through this MRI what happens when we label our feelings or when we see pictures of our feelings. So if you try to suppress the negative emotion, you are going to end up having it backfire. And that's the kind of thing that we are trying to avoid. And I think what happens to many of us who are trying to, I can deal with this, I'm just going to ignore it, I just have to move on, don't do it. Number one, what are you grateful for? Number two, label it. Just those two things that take less than a minute will start you on your way of reteaching your brain how it is the rest of your body wants to feel. So what's number three? You simply make that decision. I mean, have you ever struggled over a decision that after finally coming to a conclusion, you felt some peace? Well, there's no accidents there because brain science does show us that making a decision will reduce worry and anxiety, and we all have experienced that. But this is the bottom line, and this is what I found to be the most interesting aspect of this step number three. Trying to be perfect, and that's what we do. What's the best, absolute best solution for this? I've got to do this, and then they will do that, or then this will happen. Okay, that will actually overwhelm your brain with emotions, and it makes you feel out of control. We know that in life there is no perfect solution, because even if we think we've come to it, we don't know what's coming around the bend. 
We don't know that then something comes in and spoils all those plans that, oh my gosh, but it was perfect. And now you've started that anxiety spiraling down all over again. So this is the key. Good enough, believe it or not, is almost always good enough. So that when you make a decision, your brain then feels like you have control. And a feeling of control reduces stress. But here's what's really fascinating. Just deciding alone boosts pleasure. So that is what was so incredibly interesting to me. I just want to thank you because personally, I need this information as much as anybody. Well, Steve, I have to remind myself of this information sometimes daily. I mean, it's one thing for us to really understand how our brain works and what we are responsible for and being created in a way to actually have some measure of control in how we feel and then to actually practice it. Because when we are feeling anxious, that's usually the last thing we want to do is to do highly productive steps to feel better. Because remember, the brain will take guilt and shame over pride and feeling positive every time. It will overpower it. So unless we really choose to take these four steps, and I'll finish the last step in a moment, I'm going to use them. Unless you do that, we cannot win over that anxiety creeping in, guilt, shame, worry, taking over, and then ultimately slipping into a depression. What I'm hoping to avoid is what we recognize in the medical community as an increase, like 40, 50 percent increase of depression that is now overwhelming certainly aspects of all of the countries in the world. And because of being cloistered or at least having some restrictions and getting around, many people are not seeking help. This is why the telecommunication world in our medicine that we're trying to do via telecommunication is essential. I really want to encourage people, get help. Again, reach out to a family friend or to your spouse or to a sibling, to a parent and say, look, how would you rate? Do I seem to be depressed on you? And then you can repeat, am I not sleeping well? Am I not eating well? Am I eating too much? All those little signs and symptoms, because as you begin to understand and become a better self-analyzer, as it were, then you can take better grouping over your own responsibilities of how you can feel better. And I just want to review that trying to be perfect will overwhelm us. Because I can agree that, you know, making certain decisions can be extremely challenging, and particularly in these times. So what kind of decisions should we make? Neuroscience has the answer. Just make a good enough decision. Choose not to hold out for what you believe is going to be the 100% best possible decision. Because perfectionism will create more stress in you. So, but there is one other thing. What is the last thing that we want to do? And that is, number four, touching people. Hugging or even shaking their hand or patting them on the back. Okay, so now we have to really look at, are we causing other people a potential 
infection? Or are these people possibly causing us? You can still wear your mask. You can still pat someone on the back. You can still even give someone a hug if you know that that person that you're with has also been taking precautions. Again, it all has to do with brain hormones. And this hormone is called oxytocin because when we touch or we're being touched, that same hormone is activated. I mean, when we fall in love, when we look into a baby's eyes or when the baby looks at a mama or at their papa or at a relative or how even cats and dogs might look into our eyes and we feel that wonderful connection. That's that neurohormone oxytocin doing its wonderful, incredible job. But we just don't realize how important touch really is. Oxytocin and touch. I'm a junkie. <laughs> right? You've been listening to a KPOV Critical Conversation. To hear more engaging interviews on important topics, please visit kpov.org slash critical dash conversations.